From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures, and it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Welcome to Monster Study Group, Episode 3. Just a quick word of thanks to everyone who's listened to and supported the show so far, such as Jeremiah at the Bigfoot Society podcast. Please go check out his show. He gets great guests and engages them in thoughtful conversation. It's very worth your time. Also, I'd like to thank the Moth Boys podcast and Sean Forker of the Sasquatch Experience podcast. Your feedback has been really encouraging. And to my friend Michael Field, I sincerely hope you enjoy Return of Ultraman. I expect a full report. If you'd like to join the group, we're on Twitter, at Monster Study, and on Instagram, just search for Monster Study Group. Long-form messages can be sent to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com, and please let me know if I can read it on the show. We're going to stop by the research library today to highlight an important work in the field of cryptozoology. It's called Bigfoot, The True Story of Apes in America, and the author is Lauren Coleman, Director Emeritus of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. I don't think it's controversial to say that Coleman has done more to raise awareness about the pursuit of hidden animals than any other person alive today. He's sat for countless interviews, he's written prolifically about cryptozoology and the unexplained, in addition to select social issues such as suicide clusters and the copycat effect between violence and media. Speaking metaphorically, he's a bridge between eras. We're talking about someone who enjoyed personal correspondence with Bernard Heuvelmans, Ivan T. Sanderson, John Keel and John Green, and yet is adept at today's technology, a force to be reckoned with on Twitter, and still passionately engaged in these topics and interested in listening to new voices. So when he writes, he does so with integrity and well-earned authority, not to mention a healthy sense of humor. Those are all qualities that make Bigfoot, the true story of apes in America, a read that deserves your attention. What makes it special is that Coleman first re-examines some of the classic boilerplate Bigfoot stories that just about every Bigfoot book ever written makes sure to mention, referencing Ape Canyon, Ruby Creek, Jerry Crew, Bluff Creek, the Patterson-Gimlin film, the Minnesota Iceman, the Bossberg Tracks, Momo, the Missouri Monster, and so forth. The difference with Coleman's work is that he's commenting from a place of deep perspective, meaning decades worth of careful study and personal knowledge of the people involved in many of these cases. 
He separates truth from conflation and straight-up baloney and offers the reader a different angle on many of these well-worn and oft-repeated tales. Not to debunk them, but to clear a path to the elusive quarry of what really happened. The final section of the book is equally as enjoyable as Coleman deals with high strangeness cases, common questions he fields about Bigfoot, and goes where everyone else fears to tread, which is to say, he hypothesizes about the reproductive habits of Sasquatch. After all, if they are flesh and blood mammals, they have to come from somewhere. Finally, Coleman makes it clear where he stands on the entire subject. He says with concise confidence, one day Bigfoot will be officially recognized as a living creature. What do you think? Before you answer, pick up a copy of Bigfoot, The True Stories of Apes in America. Let the text sink in, then formulate an answer. You couldn't ask for a more winsome, celebrated, and knowledgeable guide to the topic than Lauren Coleman. And here is where things get really interesting for monster study group purposes. We have something very specific to thank for sparking a young Lauren Coleman's interest in cryptids. It was a Japanese monster movie. In February 2016, I had the opportunity to interview Lauren Coleman, along with Seth Breedlove, for the podcast Sasswhat, a show about Bigfoot. And he talked about the impact this particular movie had on him. What follows is from a transcript of that interview, Lauren Coleman is speaking. What occurred was a very specific moment in March of 1960 in Decatur, Illinois. I was watching a film called Half Human on a local station, and it was about Yeti in the mountains of Asia. I saw this on a Friday night in March and the next Saturday morning. I went to school the next week and asked my teachers, what is this about the Yeti? What is this about the abominable snowman? They gave me three answers. Don't pursue this back to your studies, they don't exist. So I got very interested in what was really going on here. Were they hiding something? Was there something more here? I started reading all I could. Before I knew it, I found Ivan Sanderson's book, on the Abominable Snowman, which came out in 1961, and in that book was the first use in English of the word cryptozoological. I got in touch with Sanderson. I started writing anybody that was mentioned in the book, including John Green, and started corresponding with about 400 people around the world. At one point, someone said to me that, you write such good letters, why don't you write articles? Once you write articles, you can put them together into books 
Once you write books, then the television companies and news people start calling you. One thing led to another. End quote. One thing led to another. The one thing at the beginning of this series of events that led to Lauren Coleman's cryptozoological quest was a movie produced by Toho Studios in 1955 called Half Human. Well, that's the American title. In Japanese, it's Jujin Yuki Otoko, literally, Beast Man Snowman. And here is where my personal nerd meter goes off the charts. It was made by essentially the same production team responsible for the original Godzilla in 1954, beginning with director Ishiro Honda, writer Takio Murata, special effects wizard Eiji Tsuburaya, actors Akira Takarada, Momoko Kochi, Sachio Sakai, and producer Tomiyuki Tanaka. In fact, Honda's commitment to this picture prevented him from directing the sequel to Godzilla, which was rushed into production due to the success of the original. In next week's episode, we'll conduct a comprehensive examination of Beastman Snowman, which for many years was considered kind of a lost film. Not in the sense that it couldn't be located, but lost, meaning that Toho pulled it from television. And it has never received an official home video release, for reasons we'll discuss a little bit later. It won't shock you to learn that Beast Man Snowman took a similar route to American screens as Godzilla did. By that, I mean the film was significantly edited and additional scenes with Caucasian actors inserted as a framing device. But whereas Godzilla's restructuring and Americanization was at the very least inventive, Beastman Snowman takes a beating. What had originally been a 93 minute film was reduced to 62 minutes, and that includes the new scenes filmed in the US. In what was probably a cost cutting measure, Half Human doesn't even try to dub any of the Japanese actors. John Carradine narrates the whole thing as if it had been a silent film. Even so, the snowman looks fantastic, moving very naturally and like many movie monsters before and since, generates a great deal of audience sympathy. In a moment, we'll go deeper into the monster movie that shaped the future of cryptozoology as we know it. We are very fortunate to have GFAN Magazine as a resource partner for Monster Study Group. GFAN is short for Godzilla Fan, and it is created by the fans for the fans. Founded in 1992 by Canadian educator J.D. Lees, GFAN now spans 127 issues and continues to be published in print only on a quarterly basis. Featuring interviews with those who made and starred in classic Japanese special effects productions, in depth analysis, and behind the scenes reports, Eye popping artwork, 
collectible roundups, book reviews, information about G-Fest, and subscriber-exclusive inserts such as press book reproductions and posters, G-Fan is the ultimate fanzine. Do yourself a favor and look into a subscription. In the U.S., it's $25 for one year, four issues. A two-year, eight-issue subscription is $45, and international subscriptions are also available. You can sign up today at g-fan.com, and while you're there, check out the back issues that are available, just $6 a piece plus shipping. I've been a subscriber for years, and I'm still excited to sit down with each new issue. Find out for yourself. Visit g-fan.com. That's g-fan.com. So what version of Juji Yuki Otoko did a 12-year-old Lauren Coleman see on television back in Decatur, Illinois? It was definitely half-human, the one with John Carradine. And here's the thing. It's easy to see how a young Lauren would have responded so strongly to it. The Carradine scenes, though stagey and stiff by modern standards, are played seriously and filled with provocative questions. Most of the Japanese sequences are dynamic and action-packed, at the very least beautifully shot. And the relationship between Snowman and Sun remains the emotional heart of the story. If anything, that note is heightened by the American cut. You'll understand why in a moment. Finally, the movie ends on a strong note of what if. More than enough to motivate an inquisitive youngster to search for answers. It's off to the library and the fields and forests for our junior cryptozoologist. As far as origin stories go, this one's a keeper. Here's a rundown of the unexpectedly influential half-human. At the beginning of the movie, we find John Carradine as Dr. John Rayburn in his university office, who sets the stage for an astounding discovery by narrating scenes from the original print of a group of skiers intoning that their day of fun was about to take a tragic turn. The group finds a mountain cabin as a blizzard begins, and an avalanche is even glimpsed before they receive a blood-curdling phone call, in which only screams and gunshots are heard. A search party heads out in the morning to find a ransacked cabin, two dead bodies, and huge footprints leading out into the snow, and a clump of hair. Further searching is done by night using flares, a haunting image. Back in his office, Dr. Rayburn holds court, referencing weird giants and UFOs, and then produces the hair discovered at the cabin site, inviting his colleagues to look at it through a microscope. He abruptly unveils a mold made of one of the tracks in the snow, the dimensions of which suggest a nine-foot creature 
a Professor Tanaka is introduced in conversation as having hypothesized the hare was from a human-animal hybrid. Rayburn then tells of a research trip to finance Tanaka's work. Then the movie goes back to original footage of the party climbing a mountain, a very Honda-like motif. Rayburn continues to narrate throughout, including the minutes of an evening meeting at base camp. The group bunks down and the shadow of the Yeti appears on the tent wall. We get a great look at the creature peering in the tent. It reaches in, apparently attracted to the character played by Momoko Kochi, but is discovered and the team springs to life. The creature is chased. One of the team tumbles off a cliff with only his rifle to be found. Back in the office, Rayburn's friend Alan asks a series of probing questions. Mention is made of the discovery of a strange, uncivilized tribe who worshipped the snowman. Back to the original footage, a worship scene gives way to the interior of a hut where a mountain girl is caring for the injured search party member, played by Akira Takarada. Rayburn narrates items like, There stood an old man, which we can clearly see if we're looking at the screen. The mountain girl is chided for bringing an outsider into the village and instructed to take a food offering to the snowman as a kind of sacrificial apology. The creature appears with his child following along. When she returns to the hut, the outsider is gone. We learn he is strung up and dangling over a cliff, left to die. He is rescued by the snowman, who even loosens his bonds and leaves peacefully. Back at the university, Alan and Philip speculate about the behavior and emotional conflict of the creature. Dr. Rayburn reveals that an autopsy is in the offing to which they are invited. At the hospital, we meet Dr. Carl Jordan standing over the corpse of a juvenile yeti. Dr. Jordan says in hushed tones that this species is one half animal and half human. He solemnly reveals that a bullet was found in the small creature's heart. Back to the original footage, we are introduced to a amoral circus owner who captures the snowboy. The snowman, hearing his child's cries, gives chase, roaring in rage as he's trapped in a net and chloroformed. The little guy, no longer needed as bait, escapes, then jumps onto the truck but is spotted by the crew, lassoed, and thrown into the cage with his dad. The snowman awakens and strangles the driver through a window. The truck skids to a stop and the creatures break out. The circus owner shoots the snowboy with no remorse. The snowman retaliates, throwing the circus owner and his truck over a cliff, then collects the body of his son, taking it back to the cave before going on a rampage in the mountain village. Rayburn lets us know that the snowman annihilated each and every one of the villagers except the girl. Professor Tanaka is credited with retrieving the juvenile body.
flashing back once more. Tanaka's search party is menaced by the snowman, who apparently starts an avalanche to deter their explorations. It works. They retreat to their base camp to wait out the night. In one of the film's most arresting shots, the monster creeps through the woods toward the camp. The snowman kidnaps Momoko Kochi and takes her back to his cave. The research team pursues, locating the destroyed village. The village girl agrees to lead them to the snowman's cave. They stumble across the body of the juvenile yeti, and almost immediately the snowman shows up, still toting Kochi. They follow it to a large domed area in the cave where it stands near the edge of a well-like pool. The village girl engages the creature in hand-to-hand combat, and finally, one of the search party members fires two killing shots into the yeti, and he and the village girl fall into the boiling liquid below. Standing around the body of the lifeless snowboy, Rayburn and company mourn the loss of the body of the adult yeti, and tellingly, not the village girl. But all is not lost, at least in Rayburn's mind. He asks, among other rhetorical questions, can we be certain the race is extinct? And, he concludes, we must keep searching. There will be new experiences. Each one will bring additional knowledge until one day, far in the distant future, the world may finally learn the complete story of the evolution of man. Fade out on the dead Yeti's face. It's tempting to ask the question, what if Lauren Coleman never sees Half Human in March of 1960? What if he goes out and plays baseball with the neighbor kids that Friday night instead? Would that have meant no writing of Mysterious America, the 16 other books, and over 300 articles to his credit? No International Cryptozoology Museum, conference, or society? Would cryptozoology even be a recognizable term? Would it even be a field of inquiry to be debated and celebrated? It's hard to say. Ivan T. Sanderson's Abominable Snowman book was released just one year later, and it seems unlikely that it would have escaped Lauren's attention. But would he have been looking for it with the same sense of urgency? We'll never know the answers to such questions, of course. What we do know is that Coleman saw Half-Human in his youth and recalls it as a turning point, a flashpoint for which I and the world of romantic zoology am grateful. I can't help but marvel that one of my favorite things, Japanese fantasy cinema, gave rise to another, North American media-savvy cryptozoology as popularized by Lauren Coleman.
and the fact that I was born in the same unassuming Illinois town a dozen years later just makes me wonder. Half Human ends with a close-up of a dead juvenile yeti. It looks remarkably like the one in Honda's original film, and there's a reason for that. It's the same suit, shipped to the American filmmakers to lend the new scenes some gravity. One wonders if Honda ever saw the chopped-up version of his film. If he did, I can't imagine it was a pleasant experience. He may have felt that there was a kind of symbolism in that little dead yeti on screen. His creation had effectively been eviscerated. And to this day, there are those who think the Carradine half-human is a Toho production all 62 minutes and therefore vilify the genre and company in the many comment sections of cyberspace. But that highlights one of the great challenges of Beastman Snowman, which is that the original movie has proven to be as elusive as the Yeti itself. Until relatively recently, almost impossible to view, even in Japan. And this is not by accident. The last known televised showing of Beastman Snowman in Japan was the early 1970s, and though it was screened at a Japanese film festival in 2001, it has never received an official home video release in any format. Now, Snowman wasn't even in the same ballpark as Godzilla as far as ticket sales went, but that isn't why it has been shelved. It's because of the film's mysterious mountain tribe, and how they can be read to resemble Japan's largest minority group called Burakumen, or Hamlet people. They are descendants of those who did the dirtiest jobs in the feudal era, and their existence is still a dirty, if open secret, in Japanese culture, one of those things you just don't talk about. And there's the issue. Since the early 70s, the Japanese media in general has self-censored as many potentially offensive references to Hamlet people as possible. The same thing has happened with regard to programs that have been deemed as insensitive to victims of the atomic bombings of 1945, all of which is to say it seems very unlikely that any official release of Beastman Snowman will ever be offered placing it in the same category as the cryptid it portrays, that of a truly hidden creature. That isn't to say it's impossible to view. Copies of copies of an alleged Taiwanese DVD can sometimes be located at monster movie conventions. Remember those? And at least for now, it's probably that same muddy DVD print that can be found at archive.org, so catch it if you can. 
I suppose it's only appropriate that a Yeti movie would be difficult to track down. Thanks so much for joining me today on our expedition to the lair of the snowman. I'd welcome your feedback on Twitter or Instagram or by writing to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com. Until next time, keep studying monsters. <laughs>